we actually skipped um, um, a value. Um, if, you, if, you, if you remember our memory device, our memory mnemonic, it's the ideal of Christ cured. And, and so there's Christ-centeredness and then cured, C-U-R-E-D, compassionate conviction, universal unity, resilient realness, emptying empowerment, and dedicated disciple making. And so cured at the top is compassionate conviction. We're going to come back to that next week, all right? This week, we want to talk about universal unity in light of the fact that we're kicking off Undivided this evening. We the section through the month of January and February, but also not only that, um, we have a, a, a very special holiday that we celebrate on Monday, and that is the holiday of MLK. Uh, but before we talk about that, I just want to talk a little bit about okay not being okay. There's times when okay is not okay, all right? Um, for example, anybody seen the AT&T commercials that they've been showing on TV? And there's the guy that's talking about uh, fixing a guy's brakes. And the guy asks him, you know, so how, you know, how are you guys with brakes? And the guy says, well, we're okay. Um, he's like, well, I mean, what does that mean? What does okay mean? And, um, and he said, and, and then the mechanic responds to him, well, you know, there's old, you know, there's old saying, if, uh, if the brakes don't stop you, something will. And the, and the guy's like, well, wait a second, that's, that's not a saying. And he's like, well, it is around here. I made it up. You know, and so, so okay sometimes is not okay. Um, on a more serious note, when you think about, you think about marriages and you think about the, the fact that, you, you know, if, if, if there was a marriage that you were aware of or a marriage that you were even a part of, and it, and it was a marriage that was uh, severely abusive verbally, physically, um, and, and, and the husband finally, finally stopped being physically, verbally abusive, to the spouse, um, and, and it got to the point where they're no longer abusive, no longer, you know, doing any of the uh, any of those horrible things. But they still really didn't talk, and they still really didn't spend time with each other, and they still, you know, really didn't appear like they loved each other. And you know, your response to your your, your response to that wouldn't be, well, okay, well, well, at least they're not, you know, fighting anymore. Hey, that's you know, that's that's great. That's a great marriage. You you would say to yourself, yeah, I mean. I'm happy about that, but there's, there's, a, there's still a long way to go, right, before, before we can give them thumbs up and say they have a great marriage in light, in light of what we understand marriage to be, right? And so, and so, and so it's, I think it's a similar type of sentiment that we enter into the ideal of unity in the church, right? We, you know, we, we kind of take this idea that, well, we don't own anybody anymore, Right? And we don't have any, I don't know, Jim Crow laws. We can all use the same restrooms, and we can all use the same water fountains. So, I mean, we're all right. We're okay. Sure, I mean, we don't worship in the same churches together, and sure, we don't eat at the same tables together, and sure, we don't really seem to have much compassion when we're having discussions about important things together, but, but I mean, we've come so far, so why, why should we keep going? I just want to, I just want to sit on that for a while. The idea that unity being just okay for us to be okay. That, that we're satisfied with the idea that, well, as long as we aren't punching each other in the face. That seems to be good enough. And yeah, you go to your church and I'll go to my church. And yeah, you stay on your block and I'll stay on my block. And yeah, you stay at your house and I'll stay at my house. And, but hey, 
you got to admit, this is really good that we're not punching each other in the face anymore. No, Dr. King said, we, sell, we honor him as he's moving into, uh, what is it, 91? He would have been? Yeah. And, he, and he, he said that Sunday morning was the most segregated hour in America, the 11 o'clock hour, the worship hour was the most segregated hour in America. And Dr. King was living the day, he would say that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour, the worship hour in America. And so we haven't, we haven't gotten there yet. Does that make sense? And so it's, it's in light of that that I read Paul's, Paul's words to us in Ephesians 4. It says, I therefore, pris a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I, I, a prisoner for the Lord. I've invested my life into this pursuit. Paul is in prison as he's writing. So he's saying that I've invested my life, I'm suffering for this pursuit, I've, I've submitted totally to the Lord in light of this pursuit, and I've accepted whatever consequences that has come my way, including being tossed in an old, dirty, muddy, and murky prison for this pursuit. And so Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So as a prisoner, I, Paul, beckon the church. I, Paul, beckon the church at Ephesus and the church global to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Worthy of the calling to which you have been called in order to know how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, we should first take a few steps back and ask ourselves, what is the actual calling? And so in starting at the beginning of chapter 4, we notice Paul is making a transition of thought. He says, I therefore, and so what is the transition from? Well, the transition is a, a, a sort of a breaking point between um, two different realms of thought. For example, chapters 1 through 3, Paul is dealing primarily with the ideal of doctrine and the ideal of right belief, the ideal of theology, the ideal of knowledge concerning the person and work of Christ and the person and work, uh, the, the, I mean, sorry, the person and work of Christ and the person of God. And so he is thinking about orthodoxy, as they say, the, 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 the smart folks say, orthodoxy, right belief. But then, sandwich, this word, therefore, is sandwiched in between a second train of thought, which is chapters 4 through 6. And chapters 4 through 6 is Paul's um, 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 discussion to, to the church about right practice, right conduct, right behavior in light of chapters 1 and 3. And we call that, smart folks do, orthopraxy. So orthodoxy, right doctrine, one through three, orthopraxy, right practice, four through six. And there's this word, therefore. So Paul is saying, live in light of what I just told you to believe in chapters one through three. Does that make sense? I told you to believe something. Now I want you to live like you actually believe it. It's already been done. It's already been established. It's already been purchased. Now I want you to live like you know that it's happened. 
the soul. The question is, what has been purchased? What has been established? Uh, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 if you have them, um, or turn your phones to Ephesians chapter 2 if you have that. And what you'll find in verse 11 is that, therefore, it, or, or, and what you'll find in verse 11, rather, is that it reads, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles were in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Gentiles being non-believers outside of the, uh, of, of the Jewish people, outside of the nation uh, of Israel. And, and, and so they are considered outsiders in every way, outsiders in culture, outsiders in practice. But then he, re and then he can, uh, continues in verse 12, speaking to the Gentiles, and he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile both, one person, and has broken down in his flesh, in his flesh, in his death, has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. He's broken that down through his own death. He continues on and he says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself, listen, one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God as one body, no longer two, but one body. So he's creating one new man in the place of the two. There is no Jew and there is no Gentile. There is just simply one new man that has been established through the blood that was spilled by Jesus. He continues and he says, And he came, talking about Christ, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So peace for those that were on the outside, peace for those that were on the inside. Now peace has been made with both as one new body. So then you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints of God. God has brought together the two and made them one. He goes as far as saying in him, in verse 22 of chapter 2, he says in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. It's not two dwelling places. It's one dwelling place for God. The two people are becoming one people and creating one dwelling place for God to dwell and inhabit. Does that make sense? It's not, it's not, it's not a, a black church, white church, Asian church, Hispanic church, where they all have different manifestations of God. No, God is manifesting throughout the universal church. His, his presence is manifested throughout the church. The church is one. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul highlights a similar thing. He says in chapter 3, verse 4, flip your phones there. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 5, which is not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What mystery, Paul, have you discovered? Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This mystery is that God through Christ has given access to all people groups to himself. This mystery 
is that to become members, uh, is that God is working throughout the world, throughout the universe, to, be, to, to make one family and for all of them to be partakers of this single promise that we have in Christ, eternal life with fellowship with him. As one family, what, are, what other doctrines is Paul highlighting in, in these three chapters? In, in, in chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And he says this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known in the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So what is he saying? saying that God is placing on prominent display for the rulers and the authorities in places that you and I don't even know about, by the way, heavenly places. We are his glorious work, and he's putting the church on prominent display for them to see. He's bringing a sense of wonder and a sense of awe to all of those who witness him, bringing all of us together from all of these separate groups and these separate people and these separate nations and these separate ethnicities, separate groups that used to fend for themselves and separate groups that used to hate one another and separate groups that used to own one another and kill one another and oppress one another. Now they are dying for each other. Now they are calling one another family, brother and sister. Now they are loving each other. To a point that when the rulers and the authorities look down at the church and they say, how could this be? And God the Father points them to Jesus in the rugged cross. And he says... That he was the reconciler. He brought them to me and he brought them to one another. Thus, through Christ, we have not only the motivation for reconciliation, but we have the example for reconciliation. And most importantly, we have the power to be reconciled both to God and to one another. Paul's desire, in other words, in chapter 4, is that we walk in light of that glorious calling. Does that make sense? In other words, what Paul is telling us in chapter 4 is that you should, we should, live up to the calling that has already been purchased for you. Be exactly who God has called you to be. He's talking to the church in general and saying, be who God has called you to be. Be who you are. Again, if you remember, we talked a few weeks back about the, about the connection of identity to behavior, right? He establishes identity. This is who you are as the people of God. And then he says, now go be that, right? You see that over and over and over again. This is who you are. Go be that. So what does it look like? What does the manner worthy of the gospel calling by which Christ has called us with his very blood actually look like? You see it in verses 2 and 3 as he begins to unpack the traits of unity. Verse 2, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Humility, with humility, with humility. Humility brings unity 
because it simply refuses to insist on its own way. It brings unity because instead it gives room for others to be elevated instead of itself. Unity can't grow in the soils of self-seeking and power-grabbing. It only sprouts and flourishes when, when, when people are sacrificing their way for the sake of others. Does that make sense? So when we sing songs that exalt Jesus, even though they don't fit in our style box, and we just kind of run through all of this eclectic playlist, or, or when we stop seeking to come up with biblical grounds for protecting our preferences or our political affiliations or our appearance or our music or our economical strategies, etc., and we rightly seek to separate biblical principle from personal preference, or when we remain open to the reality that God could in fact save and use people who don't think like me in every way and yet he can use them no less than he uses me and sometimes even greater. It's then that we are in part reflecting the type of humility necessary for true unity to be established. Does that make sense? One very, one very important thought to consider regarding hum, uh, humility was how countercultural humility was in the first century. It, of course, seems countercultural today. We think about humility and we say, man, you know, people aren't very humble in our day. But you have to understand that at least it's considered an attribute worthy of aspiring towards in our day. In the first century, humility wasn't even considered an attribute worthy of aspiring to. They thought humility was a bad trait to carry. In one of a documentary de detailing the status of humility in the, in the Eastern world during that age and time and how it eventually became a force for good, the, document, uh, the documentary records the following thoughts. Quote, perhaps the most rigorous moral thinker from ancient Greece was the philosopher Aristotle who taught in Athens. And he had a lot to say about moral courage and quest for human justice, but he never advocated humility. For him, that was the ethics of dogs. And he quotes Aristotle and he says this, people are calm toward those who are humble or to those who humble themselves before them, for by doing so, they seem to admit to being inferiors. Anger ceases towards those who humble themselves, as is evident in the case of dogs who do not bite those sitting down. And then he continues with this, the, the documentary continues with this. The word humility in both the ancient Greek and Latin meant low, as in low to the ground, and it had an entirely negative connotation. In a world that loved reputation and honor above pretty much anything else, humility just didn't make sense. Humility in the Greek and the Roman ethics would be considered a degrading thing. To put yourself down to a level that you were not born to or that you were, and that your standing in life did not require you to be in was disgraceful and debasing and there was no virtue in it at all. And so the question is, what happened, right? How did this change in the first century? And he continues with this. He says, so what happened? How did the West come to despise honor-seeking and prize humility? The evidence points firmly in one direction, Jesus of Nazareth. It's true that Jesus taught an ethic of humility. He said, whoever wants to be great must be a servant. But it probably wasn't his teaching that changed things decisively. It was his death. It is difficult to display 
or to grasp just how much of a catastrophe Jesus' crucifixion was to those who loved him. To hear that a Messiah, a great king, and an important person was crucified would be nonsense to the Greek or the Roman ear. It couldn't make sense of it. In fact, Roman citizens were not even crucified for that very reason. It was just too shameful. So the gospel message to proclaim a crucified Lord upended the value system that the Romans held. See, it was Jesus who ultimately made humility a quality to be pursued. He was the one who said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for, 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 for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He was the one who said, the last shall be first, the, sh the first shall be last. And here we hear Paul saying, walk in a manner worthy of your calling with what? Humility. See, this is why your flesh ultimately retaliates against this, because this is, this is not what we are naturally inclined to be. We are naturally inclined to say, ah, you know, we'll just, we'll sing, we'll sing what Corey likes, and we'll sing what Miss Jean likes, and, you know, we'll sing what Kim likes. No, we'll sing what I want. Because, not because I want it, but because Jesus wants it. That's why we're going to sing it that way. Are you, are you tracking with that? That's what you're bent towards. But Paul is calling you in order to find unity. He's calling you to unity. I mean, to humility. He's also calling you to gentleness. He says this is, gentleness is, is meekness. It's the same Greek word that's used for meekness. It's, it's, it's the tender kind of quality. It's, the, it's the, one, the one who walks in meekness carries the ability to speak tough truths in, in, in receptive ways. The one, the one who walks in gentleness is the one that's able to create peace because they know the right and the proper time to show anger, and they know the right and the proper time or the right amounts of anger to show. The one, the, the one theologian talks about meekness in this, in this way. He says, the meek man walks in a humble, tender, but strong state of mind. He denies himself giving utmost consideration to others. He shows a control and righteous anger against injustice and evil. A humble man forgets and lives for others because of what Christ has done for him. Meekness is not absence of confrontation. It's just learning when confrontation is right and learning how to confront properly in a way that preserves love in the midst of the confrontation. Jesus was perfectly meek, and yet we see Jesus tossing tables in the temple, right? And so it can't, it can't be the absence of confrontation because Jesus is in the temple, you know, tossing tables. So, so there has to be something to confrontation, but it's knowing when and where and how. Paul is saying in order to live out the reality of the unity that God has established through his son, his people must walk in gentleness. Leaning, learning not to get offended too easily. Learning to be kindly and loving to one another, even when we're confronting the tough issues like we'll do tonight and, and the next, next couple of weeks. Learning to diffuse anger when it is being wrongly used to stir up unnecessary strife and conflict. Learning to rightly use anger in the defense of the defenseless and in the exploitation of the weak. Unity can't be forged in a den of hotheads. Are you tracking with that? You know, that's, why, that's why our politics is so toxic. Because you got people screaming at each other for 24 hours a day. 
Right? We call that news, by the way. But we literally have people screaming at each other for 24 hours a day in this, you know, this feverish pandemonium, you know, about each other. And so we'll, we'll never find common ground that way. But the church has been discipled by that. And so that's the same thing that we tend to think will yield results. But, folks, unity can't be forged that way. And then Paul gives us the final trait. He says patience. See, the work of seeing different people coming together to form one new person is hard work. Part of the reason we seem to fail in realizing unity in our church is because, frankly, we don't have the patience to see it through. Does that make sense? We endure the pursuit for a season until it becomes too difficult, too inconvenient, or too uncomfortable. And we say, you know what? This is way too hard. I'm out of here. But our pursuit of unity must be informed by the purpose of unity. And the purpose of unity is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling to be who we already are. And so that is what fuels your patience, right? This is who God has already, this is what he's already purchased. And so I'm going to stick in. I'm going to fight it out. I'm going to continue to show love. I'm going to continue to show kindness. I'm going to continue to show meekness. I'm going to continue to humble myself and, and listen rather than always seek to be heard. Why? Because this is who I am in Jesus. This is who he has made us to be in Jesus. And so I'm not going to be satisfied with okay. I'm not going to be comfortable with you being over there and me being over here and, and we, never, we never ever come together around anything and for any purpose. I'm, I'm not going to be comfortable with that because that's simply not who he called us to be. It's not who we are in him. He made us one new man. He made us one family. He made us one body. He's building one temple for his dwelling. And so I'm going to be patient until we see it through. And then short, quickly, we turn to the foundations. He, he turns his attention to something that's just as important as the traits and characteristics that are needed in order to establish unity. And that's the foundations. He says this. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, one of, my, one of my pastors shared a story with me last week about the 2004 Summer Olympics. The Olympian um, had this, there was an Olympian during that Olympic Games who had this unbelievable story. 23-year-old uh, a man by the name of Matt Emmons. Anybody know Matt Emmons? I'll make sure nobody's related to him. Um, Matt Emmons was an Olympic sharpshooter, and he was already fresh off of winning one gold medal, and he was right on the cusp of winning his second gold medal. And so he, he, was, going in, he was going into his final round um, with the lead and a sizable lead at that. And so with a sizable lead, Matt Emmons entered his last or entered the last round aiming down the barrel, looking at his final target. And all Matt Emmons had to do in order to win was just simply hit the target, and he wins, and, 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 and he has a second gold medal at 23 years old. And so Matt Emmons uh, does what he normally does, and he goes through his routine. He aims, he looks squarely at his target, and, and, and he shoots, pulls the trigger, and Matt Emmons hits the bullseye 
straight dead where it needs to be. And Matt Emmons does not win the gold medal. Matt Emmons actually ends up in fourth place. And, and what happened to Matt Emmons? Matt Emmons was actually looking down the barrel and he was aiming at one of his competitors' target. And he was not aiming at his own target. And so he shoots his competitor's target, hits the bullseye squarely on his competitor's target. But because he doesn't hit his target, he literally loses his gold medal, loses all medals. His aim was perfect, his technique was spot on, but his target was wrong and cost him the entire competition. And so how we pursue unity um, can only take us so far. We must understand what exactly are we uniting around. Does that make sense? Because all unity isn't gospel unity. You know, ch chapters one through three, they painted this picture, this glorious picture of what God is doing in the church. And so, and so that, that has to be the unity that, or that has to be the picture that shapes our unity. If we all just leave here and say, hey, let's just go join hands and sing Kumbaya with anybody and everybody and everything, that's not really the unity that we're pursuing. And so Paul spends a moment unpacking what kind of unity are we pursuing. He says that there is one body and one spirit. In other words, Paul is saying that we are united around the ideal of the church. The church, the universal church. Our concern, our concern for unity, our fellowship extends to all believers. Our ultimate goal is the unity of the saints as far as it can be done within our power. I'm not going to die upset if, if, if I don't have unity with other religions. I mean, we might just disagree, and I'm okay with that. Are you tracking? Because my aim is focused on the unity with the church. One spirit is the, is the, the power behind our unity. There is one body, one spirit. We are united and empowered by one spirit. I know that the power is there for us to be united, the church of Jesus Christ to be united. Why? Because we have the spirit of God living on the inside of us indwelling and inhabiting our church or indwelling in and inhabiting the church. I don't know that about everybody else. Does that make sense? And so I'm not going to be bent out of shape if I'm not unified with every single person in the world. But I know what we have. Paul says that that is the grounds or the foundation, one of the foundations for our unity. He says our hope, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, our hope is the foundation for our unity. Our unity is founded in one hope. Our end goal is or should be the same as the people of God. We aren't united in the ideal of American exceptionalism or Hispanic exceptionalism or Asian or black power, or white power. We are united in the hope that our king will one day crack the sky and return for his bride, the king that he, uh, the bride that he purchased. That's the hope. That's the hope. I love this country, but I'm not staking my claim on this country. I'm staking my claim on Christ. That's the only thing, that's the only thing that gives me hope at the end of the day. One Lord pointing to Christ Jesus. We're unified under the banner of his lordship. I'm not bent out of shape if 
I'm not unified with other, as I mentioned, other faiths. They have different lords. I have, I have Jesus. One faith, one baptism. In other words, we are all trusting by faith this same God, and that is the faith, and that and that faith is what saves us. We are all dying. The baptism, baptism represents a death, and we are all dying to ourselves. We're united in that death. We're united in our trust and allegiance and alliance, reliance on Christ. And then finally, one God and Father, the one who is over all and through all and in all. It refers to God the Father, his relationship with believers. Not some believers, but all believers. He is our Father, and we are his children. He himself has made us family. Thus, we can call him Father. And so, and so those are the foundations, right? We aren't just united around anything. There, there, there are pillars that we are, that we are united on. on, on, on. And so when you talk about universal unity, you're, you're, you're talking about this idea that, that we are bringing all of these different cultures together. And we're bringing all these different people together, right? And we're bringing all these different ethnicities together. And, and yeah, it's, 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 it's extremely uncomfortable at times, right? But humility gives us a way to embrace the discomfort, doesn't it? Instead of fighting for our own way, allow space and opportunity to defer to one another. In the midst of the conflict, right, when somebody says, man, you people, you, what do you mean you people, right? <laughs> Hold on, man, let me go get my boxing gloves. No, 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 that's not, that's not, that's not what that means, right? Why? Because meekness provides a way for you to journey through the hardships of the hard discussions. Does that make sense? It, know, it, know, it knows, to, it, it remembers how to rightly, rightly use anger and how to rightly diffuse conflict. And so it, so it, says, it says to itself, well, wait a second, wait a second. You know, I know my brother, right? I know my sister. And so, and so yeah, we, we might be missing each other on this conversation, but it doesn't mean that they don't love me. Are you, are you tracking with that? And then patience allows us to just simply bear through the hardships, bear through the disagreements, bear through the differences, bear one another's burdens in love. And why are we doing it? We're doing it because this is who we are, not who we're trying to become. Not who we hope to be. This is literally who you are. Christ has already performed the work. You are simply living in light of it and seeking to live in a manner worthy of the calling that has been purchased for you through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. Amen.